I was at a client facility recently and the client asked me, Bob, when did this fair market value become such a thing? Well, in this episode, let's take a ride through history regarding fair market value. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today is about fair market value. And as I said in the teaser, I was at a client facility recently, and the client asked me, Bob, when did this fair market value become such a thing? And it's interesting. I have sort of been in the epicenter since the late 90s in fair market value and commercial reasonableness. But in this episode, I'm going to walk through the history, uh, when did it become, quote, such a thing, and also uh, you know, give some of the history as to why CMS, the OIG, the DOJ are concerned about fair market value. Because outside the context of healthcare or any type of government contracting, it's really just a buyer and seller negotiating issues. And if, if you pay too much, in fact, early on, uh, when I was a, a young associate, I was in a meeting uh, with a healthcare client and uh, I was a young associate. And so a partner uh, had to come along and the partner was a real estate attorney. So he was not a healthcare attorney. And we sat with the chief financial officer and the chief financial officer was discussing some leases that this uh, organization had. And she was concerned that the leases were above fair market value. And the real estate partner jumped in and said, well, sometimes we as business people negotiate, quote, a bad deal. And at the end of the term, you can just simply renegotiate and hopefully bring the terms more in line into what you believe to be reasonable and fair market value. And I kicked the partner under the table and I looked at the chief financial officer and I said, um, excuse me, this is healthcare. And healthcare is all about fair market value. And if you pay above fair market value or in a lease arrangement, if physicians pay below fair market value, that could be deemed a kickback under the anti-kickback statute, or it could be non-compliant with the Stark Law, for which the, uh, the chief financial officer smiled at me and she said, you get it. So that was sort of my entree, and this is like in the late 90s. Uh, so that was my entree into healthcare. So in order to understand how the government has created these weapons, the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, the False Claims Act, we need to go back to 1965. Sounds like Casey Kasem. <laughs> back to 1965 when the Medicare uh, program was enacted. And it basically was a fee for service. 
And at that point, uh, when, when the payer of the largest industry in the country, which is the government, uh, and so the largest industry is healthcare, when they're the largest payer, they can make the rules. Uh, and they were determining that they or discovered that there were, were fraud because people understanding the fee-for-service relationship, uh, the more services rendered or billed, the more reimbursement or compensation that would be paid. So in order to battle that approach, uh, the Congress enacted in 1972 the anti-kickback statute. And it basically said that if you receive a kickback or a fee for referring a patient or for other services that were reimbursed by the government, that was deemed to be a kickback. But in 1972, there was no teeth to the statute. So in 1977, there was teeth added to the anti-kickback statute, making it a felony that if you provided a kickback to induce referrals or you paid a fee for referring patients or services otherwise reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid, that is a criminal violation. It's a felony, and it could be imprisoned for up to five years. So again, 1965, fee-for-service, Medicare. 1972, the anti-kickback statute. 1977 uh, created the anti-kickback statute as a felony. So we trucked along for a while until 1983, and this is the uh, one of the pinnacle cases under the anti-kickback statute. So Dr. Alvin Grieber, he paid referring physicians to his company. He had a company called CardioMed, and he was arguably paying bogus, I'll put in air quotes, interpretation fees for physicians when they referred business to his company. And everybody knows uh, that uh, is a listener to Stark Integrity that under the Grieber principle, if one purpose of the financial arrangement is to induce referrals, that implicates the anti-kickback statute. So you're going to say, well, Bob, what, what's this about fair market value? Well, in that case, if there were services rendered, but the services rendered were not equivalent to the compensation paid, any excess compensation would be above fair market value, and that can be deemed to be a kickback, or it could be deemed to be a fee for referring that patient uh, to that provider. So the Grieber case sent shockwaves through the industry where people were very concerned that if one purpose was to, I'll put in air quotes again, induce, because um, yeah, I've said this on uh, Stark Integrity before, it's not illegal to hope for, to expect, to plan for referrals. Um, and as everyone knows, I, I was in-house for a Catholic organization. And one time I had a sister come up to me and she said, well, Bob, is it okay for me to pray for referrals? And I said, sister, it is perfectly fine for you to pray for referrals. So it's not illegal to hope for, plan, expect, or even pray for referrals. You cannot just pay for referrals. So if any of the compensation, it could be deemed to be provided to a referral source like a physician with the intent to induce referrals, then that implicates the anti-kickback statute. This is when I always say under the Grieber principle, your heart could be 99.9% .9 pure. But if one sliver of that heart is with the intent to induce referrals, and typically these are bad emails, uh, where the email would say that if we don't do this deal with Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith will take all of his referrals to the competitor. And therefore, we have to pay this physician what the physician is asking for. Now, that, you know, it could possibly be fair market value, you know, back in 1983. But in this case, one purpose was expressed as the intent to induce referrals. So that takes us to 1991. 
1991, under the anti-kickback statute, safe harbors were created. Uh, because of the concern created by the Grieber case and understanding that the anti-kickback statute is a felony, so uh, safe harbors were created. Now, Stark Integrity listeners know there's a difference between a safe harbor under the anti-kickback statute, which you do not need to fully comply with. And your only defense there is that you did not intend to induce referrals and contrast that with Stark. If Stark is implicated, you must fit squarely within an exception. So in 1991, the safe harbors, uh, voluntary, came out and fair market value was embedded into three of the safe harbors, the space rental, the equipment rental, and the personal services and management contracts safe harbor. And the personal services and management contract safe harbor is for independent contractors. Note that I did not say employee safe harbor. And that is because literally that safe harbor just basically says that you have to be a W-2 employee. And if you're a W-2 employee as defined by the IRS, then you are fitting within the safe harbor. Now, caution there. Even though that's the literal interpretation of the exception, if you're paying a physician above fair market value and the parties know, then that excess compensation could be deemed to be the kickback or the fee for the referral. So even though you're fitting within the employment safe harbor, I still think it's very important, even though I would advocate, you know, if you're a W-2 employee, you fit squarely within the safe harbor. Um, I would always proceed under abundance of caution to make sure that the compensation is still reflective of fair market value, especially in light of Stark. So that was the anti-kickback statute up to 1991. So enter January 1, 1992, the world changed the Stark Law became effective. Now, as Stark Integrity listeners know that when Stark was originally effective, it only applied to laboratories. So that if a physician had an ownership in a laboratory, then the physician was prohibited under Stark from referring the laboratory test to the physician-owned laboratory. Uh, as they say biblically in Genesis, they thought they saw the, the savings to the government and the government said, this is good. And so they expanded the list of designated health services. So again, laboratories started off in 1992 as the only designated health service. And then in 1993, they expanded the list of designated health services to the designated health services as we know today. You know, going to laboratories as well as other services, including inpatient and outpatient services. And again, I've had Stark Integrity episodes that talk about the various designated health services. Uh, but the granddaddy of them all is the inpatient and outpatient services. So anything that a hospital would bill is covered by the Stark Law. Uh, and again, there are other uh, designated health services. So it became effective in 1993. And so it was a simple statute and people just said, okay, if I'm a physician and I have an ownership interest or a compensation arrangement, I cannot fit within or I can't bill for those services that I refer or the DHS entity can't bill for the services referred unless I squarely fit within an exception. So here comes the phase one regulations. So phase one regulations uh, were issued and effective uh, Monday, August the 14th, 1995. So again, Stark was uh, effective January 1, 1992. The DHS services were expanded 
1993, and we had our first set of long regulations. And everyone knows on Stark Integrity, there are three sets of major regulations. We also have the final rules that came out in 2021. But each of these are about 300 pages in the Federal Register trying to interpret this simple, (laughs) put simple in air quotes, this simple statute. So in 1995, we received from CMS, this is a present from CMS to the industry, a definition of fair market value. So I would say that uh, if somebody wanted to say, you know, when did fair market value really become a big thing? I would say that uh, once this definition was issued in 1995, then the stake was put into the ground. So the phase one regulation, here's the definition of fair market value. Fair market value means the value in arm's length transactions Now, note, there are cases out there that says just because it's arm's length does not necessarily mean the result is fair market value. But uh, in the definition, it means the value in arm's length transactions consistent with the general market value. With respect to rentals or leases, fair market value means the value of rental property for general commercial purposes, then open paren, not taking into account its intended use. So it's just general commercial purposes, not necessarily healthcare. In the case of lease of space, this value may not be adjusted to reflect additional value the prospective lessee, usually a physician tenant, or lessor would attribute to the proximity or convenience to the lessor when the lessor is a potential source of patient referrals to the lessee. And here, they're really focusing in on hospitals that rent office space through a medical office building to physicians. So usually in real estate, it's location, location, location. Here under the definition, it says that you cannot take into account the fact that it's located next to the hospital. And because the space is located next to the hospital, that's a convenience for the physician and take that into consideration when setting the uh, the rental amount. So you cannot take that into consideration. So that is in 1995. We now have a definition. So here's where I personally become involved. In 1998, there was a settlement with a Catholic hospital in South Bend, Indiana. It was St. Joseph Regional Medical Center. And if you look up the the settlement agreement, you're not going to see St. Joseph Regional Medical Center. Maybe you'll find it through a general search. But the entity that actually signed the criminal indictment is an entity called Horizon Group Enterprises. Horizon Group Enterprises was a subsidiary of the parent corporation. And in that case, fair market value was a pinnacle issue uh, that uh, two physicians, doctors Addis and Farr, uh, one of the doctors uh, basically went to the Department of Justice and complained that the hospital, St. Joe, was providing financial inducements and above fair market value compensation with the intent to induce referrals. The DOJ said, very interesting, did you accept? And the doctor said, yes. Well, one of those doctors spent three years in jail. The other doctor spent two years in jail. St. Joe signed a a five-year corporate integrity agreement. I was brought in-house, as Stark Integrity listeners know, I was brought in-house to be the compliance officer and general counsel for St. Joe and served in that capacity for seven years until I went back into private practice. But that was the pinnacle case. Uh, I think it was like the first tax-exempt hospital system that signed a criminal indictment for above fair market value compensation. So that was a a critical issue was fair market value. Then in the next year, uh, 1998, a lot of people that are of my generation can uh, know about the LaHue brothers. The LaHue brothers 
We're basically asking for above fair market value compensation for administrative services for uh, five Missouri and Kansas hospitals in order to refer those patients to their facilities. And so that was another pinnacle case uh, that fair market value became front and center. So we have the, the definition in 1995. We have a couple of very pinnacle cases, 1998 uh, with uh, Horizon Group Enterprises slash St. Joe Regional Medical Center and the LaHue Brothers. And again, I was personally involved uh, with the, uh, the St. Joe case. And when I say personally involved, I was personally involved post-settlement. Uh, so I was not involved in the creation of that financial arrangement. So we truck along now until like, I think it was 2002 or 2003, I gave a presentation in Washington, D.C. on fair market value documentation. And basically, uh, my presentation was talking about the methodology that I implemented at St. Joe as a result of being the compliance officer as well as the general counsel. And basically what we did is we took four benchmark sources and we averaged them. We created an averaged ben benchmark range, and then we used that averaged benchmark range in order to create the compensation arrangement with our employed and independent contractor physicians. So after I gave that presentation, I arrived back home and that Monday, uh, my assistant came to my office and said, somebody from CMS is on the line. And uh, again, I was in-house at the time and I said, oh my gosh, what did we do? So I answered the phone and uh, the person from CMS said, you know, Bob, this is not about you personally or about St. Joe, but I heard your presentation in Washington, D.C. about uh, how you developed fair market value and we're interested in creating a fair market value safe harbor under Stark. And so I talked with them and consulted with them about the averaging of benchmark sources. And so, uh, again, sort of being in the epicenter of fair market value, the, uh, the safe harbor was created in, um, in the phase two regulations. So in phase two regulations, this, these came out in 2004, so March 26, 2004. And basically, there were two tests that came out as a kind of a, a safe harbor for fair market value. So again, this is in 2004. So the two tests, and these are, again, safe harbored fair market value. If the hourly rate, again, focusing on the hourly rate, is less than or equal to the average hourly rate for emergency room physicians in the market, not, not used quite a bit, or, and this is the most significant, the hourly rate is, quote, determined by averaging the 50th percentile national compensation level for physicians with the same physician specialty in at least four of six specified surveys. Again, this was at the 50th percentile or less, but they were focusing in on the hourly compensation and they de derived the hourly compensation by taking total cash compensation and dividing that by 2,000 hours. But the theory was is that as long as you took benchmark data and you averaged it, it was a commercially reasonable methodology. And they were recognizing at the 50th percentile, at least this is where the industry went, at the 50th percentile, whether it's hourly compensation or total cash compensation, if you're at the 50th percentile or less, that was sort of a safe harbored position. Well, we trucked along for a few years and uh, there was some concern about either if you were outside of that 50th percentile or less, then it was not deemed to be fair market value, which is not what the government was saying. They were just saying you were safe harbored because obviously if you're at the uh, looking at a benchmark survey, 
of respondents will be above the 50th percentile. So that was never the intention of CMS that you had to be at the 50th percentile or less. But of greater concern was how expensive these surveys were and some of the stated surveys did not exist. So, uh, so they ended up dropping in 2007. So this is the phase three regulations. They dropped the, the safe harbor, but they still said it is a prudent methodology. So even though it was removed in the phase three regulations about the averaging of benchmark sources, they still said it is a prudent methodology. So the use of benchmark sources basically became the gold standard. Uh, but from my perspective, as I'm interacting with my clients developing fair market value defensibility analysis, I never say that you have to rely solely on the benchmark data. The benchmark data is a good guide. It's a commer commercially reasonable starting point. And that became crystal clear in the final rules that became effective on January 19, 2021. They did a couple of things. Uh, CMS in regulation said, um, although you can use the benchmark sources, the benchmark sources are not the end-all, be-all, so to speak, it's because sometimes the benchmark sources uh, can support the compensation or it could render the compensation too low, or it could render the compensation too high. Sounds like Goldilocks and the three bears. And so it's, it's a tool, it's a valuable tool. And so from my perspective, that's where I start. And so that's what I believe the final rules in 2021 were saying is that you start with the benchmark data. And then as you, as you recall, when I read the definition of fair market value, it said to, to look at the, quote, general market value, end quote. Now, a lot of people were interpreting general market value as being the value across the country guided by the benchmark data. And it was crystal clear in the final rules in 2021 is that you actually look at the specific service area that you are recruiting for or employing the physicians in. So you would look at the service area, the specialty of the physician, the experience of the physician. So everything became fact specific. So fair market value, again, started in 1965 when the enactment of Medicare, uh, where fraud was allegedly occurring. And it takes us all the way up with the pinnacle you know, dates of 1991 with the safe harbors, 1992 with the enactment of the Stark Law, 1993 with the expansion of designated health services uh, to 2004, the phase two, 2007, the phase three, and then 2021 with the final rule. And so now we're looking at the specific transaction to determine whether or not the facts and circumstances can warrant uh, the compensation proposed. And that's where you use people like me or other uh, evaluators in order to determine whether or not the compensation proposed is deemed to be defensible based upon the facts and circumstances. So this takes us to the three Captain Integrity Punch Points. Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, the fair market value really started in 1991 with the issuance of the anti-kickback statute safe harbors, uh, the space rental, equipment rental, and the personal services and management contracts safe harbor where fair market value became a component of those safe harbors. Captain integrity punch point number two is fair market value has been guided by cases and settlements, including what I said was the initial case, uh, the Horizon Group Enterprises or St. Joe Regional Medical Center that I was very much a part of. 
where fair market value was a pinnacle issue. So cases and settlements guide the definition of fair market value and has done so historically. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is that CMS, through regulations under Stark, has continued to define and refine the definition of fair market value to the point where we are today, where it's very much a facts and circumstances looking at the service area and the specific physician guided by benchmark data in order to determine the defensibility of fair market value. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.